morning, everyone. Great to see you. It looks like spring. It just doesn't quite feel like it yet, but it's coming. It's coming. Hey, can I nudge you one more time about being invitational for next week? It's going to be Easter Sunday. Lots of folks that you know would be open to coming to Easter service. Many people, as Pastor Paul was mentioning earlier, actually have a desire to go to church or an, or an impulse to go, but just don't know where to go or what to do next. And so being invitational could help them get over that threshold, overcome that barrier. Here's another idea. Maybe you could invite them to come with you. You know, I can come by and pick you up. You can ride with us, sit with us, maybe encourage them to uh, have dinner with you afterwards. Uh, you know, just lower, lower the stress that people have when they're trying to initiate a relationship with the church. That'd be great. Thank you for your help with that. And as you can see, you know, the, the room is, is literally comfortably full in this service. So next week, if you bring a friend, you are welcome to come into this space. If you're not bringing a friend, listen, you're welcome to use, go to the sanctuary and worship there. There's a live, live band, live music in the sanctuary. The preaching is live. It's just not in person. And so we pipe it over there in high definition. Uh, I'm even bigger and more handsome over there on the screen than I am in here. And so they actually put hair on me and, and make me younger. It's really thinner. It's nice. So check that out. Appreciate, appreciate your sensitivity to all that. Welcome back to the Grave Robber series. We've been talking about the miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of John. There are seven such miracles, and today we want to talk about miracle number six, and this is when Jesus healed a man born blind, a powerful, creative miracle that Jesus performed, and I want to rehearse that with you today. It's in John's Gospel, chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 for us. If you have your Bibles, uh, feel free to turn there. If not, we'll project the words on the screen for you. And as is our custom, we seek to honor the Word of God by asking you to stand to hear His Word. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. And he replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. May God inspire us today through this powerful story. You may be seated. At about six months of age, children start developing internal pictures for external realities. In other words, they, they start creating images in their mind, their mind's eye, that they associate with people and places and things that they see. It, it's what psychologists call representational intelligence. There's this connection uh, between what people have seen and what they define things to be. Uh, uh, it's like a slow-developing Polaroid picture uh, that occurs early in a child's 
mind. For example, the first internal images of mom, this occurs at about age six months. Then the image of dad forms at about eight months. And you give children a few years and their entire vocabulary will have a matching picture with that particular association. If your eyesight doesn't develop normally, then neither will your mind's eye, as it were. To the seeing eye, words prompt images. If I say the word the White House, you have an image of that, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. If I say car or lake or pet, then you associate that with a word. You know, an image comes into your mind. The man born blind, to associate with him, has many words in his vocabularies, as we do, as many words, but he has zero images. He was born blind. His photo album was empty. He had a pictureless existence. He couldn't picture the faces of his mother, his father. He couldn't even imagine a sunset, the splendor of a flower. He'd never seen himself in a reflection. He literally had no self-image. He couldn't have picked himself out in a lineup. He'd never seen himself. Now, this makes it hard to imagine this miraculous moment that occurred because we can't unsee what we have already seen. But I think we're going to experience something similar to this when we make it to heaven. I rather suspect that there are going to be sounds that we hear, these angelic octaves that we could never possibly hear with our earthly ears. And we will probably see these amazing cosmic colors in heaven in a super sensitized, glorified body that we could never see with our natural body. When I was in the fourth grade, my fourth grade teacher put a, uh, a picture, a print, of a rather famous piece of art, which was done by Albrecht Dürer, a famous German artist. It was done in ink and with pen. And it's, it was of the praying hands. I want to put that picture up on the screen for you. You've seen this in some version of this. Uh, beautiful rendition of the praying hands. Now, two things about that event. One was that this was a day when a fourth grade teacher could put praying hands in front of the classroom. Just let your mind get around that for a minute. And the second thing was she asked us to draw our own rendition of the praying hands. Now, I didn't hear a description of it. I wasn't paying attention. And I sat near the back of the room in fourth grade. He says, here I am, 10 years old. And so I heard her say, everybody draw their own version. And so I started drawing my version of what I saw. And what I saw with my, my uh, emerging nearsightedness at the age of 10 was a large bird landing on a limb. Can you see it? boy was blind as a bat. And so I finished my assignment, walked up, turned it in. She said, what is this? I said, well, I'm not a very good artist, but that's the best bird I could draw. She looked at me. She said, Greg, why did you draw a bird? Now I was confused. And now just above her desk was this, was this print. And I looked at it from close range and I realized, boy, that's not a bird. <laughs> Those are praying hands. So Two weeks later or so, when I was at the eye doctor getting my first pair of glasses, <laughs> I was amazed at what I could see. I remember that very vividly, very powerfully, the colors, the definition, the clarity. My mother still giggles when she tells the story. When I looked out the window from the doctor's office the first time I had my glasses on, I, I exclaimed, 
the trees have leaves. You know, before that, I just thought they had green clumps, you know, and that's all I could define with my poor sight. Here the man born blind had to be overwhelmed by the images flying at him, having never seen anything his whole life. What a powerful and profound experience this must have been for him. There's some things we can learn from this man and his story and Jesus' miracle power. The first, if you're following the outline, the first one is this, never say never. Never say never. Could you repeat that with me? Never say never. Now watch this. There are four primary types of healing miracles that are ascribed to Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, He made the lame to walk, the mute to talk, the blind to see, and the deaf to hear. Now these are all amazing in their own right. But the idea of healing someone who is blind increases the degree of difficulty. The complexities required for us to see, to have this miracle of sight, is, is amazing physiology. This sixth miracle is in a category all by itself because Jesus didn't merely help a blind man see, which would be profound, but he, he, he helped a man born blind to see which means the, the connections, the mechanics, the, the, hard, the hardware or the software and the machinery necessary to be able to see was broken down. Either his eyeball wasn't properly formed, so light couldn't actually get into his mind. The, the, the optic nerve maybe wasn't there or wasn't, wasn't ever connected. The visual cortex of his brain undeveloped. He, had, he was born blind. He had never seen Here's what we learned from science. On day 42 after conception, the first neuron is formed in a baby's brain, 42 days. By birth, a baby will have an estimated 86 billion brain cells, 86 billion. As a newborn experiences new sights and sounds, then the brain begins to form neuronal connections called synapses. It's just the electrical wiring. So after birth, babies begin to build into their brains these electrical wiring synapses that begin to connect all of these billions of cells of their brain. By the time a baby is just six months old, each brain cell has about 18,000 connections, billions of brain cells, each one of which has about 18,000 connections. This is the wonder of evolution, right? I say sarcastically. Yeah, whatever. And there could be more than 18,000 connections to each cell if you use baby Mozart CDs or baby Einstein's DVDs. I don't know. Just saying. This uh, miraculous process is actually called uh, synaptogenesis, just the beginning of all of uh, this wiring process to the brain. Dr. Harry uh, Shugani is a pediatric neurologist who pioneered the PET scans. And he compares the process to a nuclear reactor, millions of neurons firing across billions of neural pathways every second of every day. According to the doctor, a baby's brain pulsates pulsates at at 225 times the rate of the average adult. Now, if you're a parent or grandparent, this explains everything, doesn't it? Would you please sit still? Impossible. (laughs) Now, did you know that babies are born legally blind? It's true. That's why touch is so critically important in the early days and weeks and months of a baby's life. But at eight months, however, their visual acuity, color vision, depth perception, that begins to rival that of an adult. So like clockwork, vision is wired in between uh, birth and 18 months, and this synaptogenesis, all this wiring starts taking place in the visual cortex 
and all that peaks at about three months. Now watch this. If you were to place a patch over the eye of a newborn baby and leave it there during the first few years of life, that baby would be blind in that eye for the rest of their lives. Even if there was no physical deformity or genetic defect, the baby was perfectly healthy. Now why is that? Pretty simple. None of these synapses would form between the visual cortex and the optical nerve. Now double back to our man who was born blind. Follow it now. Ophthalmologists would call his condition irreversible. And understandably so. Now that we know the physiology, we know how the development of the visual capacities of the human mind and brain, the natural window of opportunity for this man to ever see again had closed. Irreversible, impossible. Now what is the point, the first point of this sermon? Now the reason you want to say never say never is because when things become literally, physically, naturally impossible, that's when God does his best work. That's when God does his best stuff. This is when God puts his, puts his best foot forward. This is when God does something really great. And that's what happened here. And it's not the first time I'll remind you that Sarah and Abraham were well past their childbearing years before Isaac was born. Remember that? And we also have Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John Baptist, who were well past their years. And John was born. And then we have uh, this story of this little teenage virgin called Mary and her little miracle. See, when, when, when natural earth, earthly uh, reality says to us that that is impossible, that can't happen, that's, that's, that's not within the realm of reality, that's when God begins to do his best stuff. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like you've missed your window of opportunity? Maybe you're in a place like that right now. Maybe you've lost track of the number of specialists you've seen or the treatments you've received. Maybe your last marriage ended in divorce. And you wonder if you're ever going to be able to love again or trust again. Maybe you keep repeating similar mistakes over and over again in your life and what's left of your integrity seems to be completely gone. What if uh, you're a person in the room today, and I suspect there are many, you're sexually broken, you're not even sure what healthy sexuality looks like, feels like anymore. That's just where you live feels like your window of opportunity has closed. And of course, these illustrations I mentioned are not hypothetical. These are similar to the cases that we find Jesus healing and making whole in the New Testament. These are the people Jesus healed, like the woman with the issue of blood, 12 years suffering, the woman at the well, five husbands and a sixth cohabitation the tax collector, the leper, the woman caught in the act of adultery, all of these stories we can resonate with. These are people whose issues and baggage and problems and brokenness we identify with. And Jesus brought wholeness and healing and hope to each one of them. I don't know your specific circumstances, but I do know that with God, He can create new pathways where the pathways seem to be closed or He can repair old ones that seem to be broken down. 
He is the God of the second chance. Are you listening? He's the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. He's the God of a thousandth chances because he's a good God and it's never too little and it's never too late when Jesus gets involved. Never say never. Never say never. That's pretty good preaching here at 10.30 in the morning. Now here's the second thought and that's, if you're on your outline, the glory of God. The glory of God. Now, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus said, no, no, neither are to blame for this man's condition. Jesus said, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him, so that God could display his glory, that he might receive honor through this man. So what do you do when the miracle you're believing God for doesn't happen? What do you do? How do you respond to that? Let me, let me tell you that with regard to the, God's miracle-working power, there are two equal and opposite mistakes that people make. They're, they're on either end of the spectrum. One mistake goes like this. Because I cannot understand all there is to know about God's miracle power, therefore, I will not reach out to God in this way. Because I can't get my mind around all the issues related to God's miracle power, His healing power, I just won't trust him. I won't believe him because I can't answer all the why questions. It's too complex for me to comprehend. Therefore, I'll just dismiss that whole arena as possible for me. The other extreme goes something like this. Because God operated a certain way on one occasion in my life, therefore, he will operate the same way every time in my life. And that's equally wrong and presumptuous in this case. Just because God did one thing one way at one time in your life does not mean he's going to operate the same way every time in your life. And so these two extremes can leave us out of the balanced, healthy, wholesome middle of trusting God and believing God no matter the circumstances in our lives. Now, therefore, how do we make the application? Well, sometimes you need to keep holding out for the miracle. You need to keep holding on. You need to keep a hold of the altar of God, hanging on to Jesus himself, the woman with the issue of blood, you know, reached for him. And grabbed him. And this, is the, this, is, this was her determination. And she suffered for 12 years. And that should be the posture that we assume. There should be other applications that would suggest that sometimes you need to accept the new normal. And recognize that God might want to glorify himself in a way you wouldn't choose. Sometimes God heals you of your infirmity. Of your circumstances. But sometimes God will heal you in your infirmity in your circumstances. Do you have an ear for that? We have, to, we have to live with the tension of these two sometimes. One of the keen examples in our own generation is a young woman, now a middle-aged woman, um, called Joni Erickson Tata. Many of you know she's a Christian woman. She is very public in her ministry and dove into a lake as a teenage girl and was paralyzed and has been a quadriplegic in a wheelchair ever since. And for years and years, believe God, held on for a miracle, which has never come. And so she has, over the years, come to terms with, not healed of her condition, but healed in her condition. It's an interesting level of grace, isn't it? Special miracle there. If I, if I say the name Fanny Crosby, how many of you know who I would be talking about? Fanny Crosby. Mostly old people with their hands up. 
Let me tell you something about Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby lived uh, here in the United States from 1820 to 1915. Fanny Crosby lost her sight when she was six weeks old. So having learned what we have about the development of the visual cortex in, in, in a human brain, we know that this girl never saw anything and had no potential to see anything in her life. And, and that, that's the way she lived her life. What you may not know about Fanny Crosby is in her life she wrote 8,000 hymns and gospel songs. 8,000. When Fanny Crosby was alive in the United States, everybody in America knew her, knew her name, and knew about her because she was such an, an inspiration. This is what Fanny Crosby wrote on one occasion. She said, It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. Hmm. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. She said, I don't want to get distracted from my primary mission, which is to write and sing hymns of praise. That's my purpose in life. Some of the hymns that she wrote, you have heard of, All the way my Savior leads me. All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His tender mercy, who through life has been my God? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in Him to dwell. For I know whatever befalls me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. How about this one? Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. How many of you could sing that hymn with me if we started it right now? Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. Redeemed, redeemed. Isn't that great? Praise Him, praise Him. Jesus, our blessed Redeemer. Sing, O earth, His wonderful love proclaim. Hail Him, hail Him. Highest archangels in glory. <laughs> That's good stuff, isn't it? And you, how about close to thee? And I am thine, O Lord. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord. How about this one? To God be the glory. Great things he has done. He has done. So he, he loves so the world that he gave his son who yielded his life and atonement for sin. Open the life gate that all may go in. Fanny Crosby song. Perhaps the one most beloved from Fanny Crosby is the hymn, Blessed Assurance. Bill Arnett was the professor of Wesleyan theology at Asbury Theological Seminary back when I was a student there. And the three days a week I was in his class studying Wesleyan theology, one of the days in that class, inevitably sometime during the week, he would stand up and begin that day's class period by starting the song, Blessed Assurance. Dr. Arnett would just stand up and just start singing a cappella. Blessed assurance. We would all join in. And we would sing it together as a class. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. How many of you know we started class that day with the presence of God in the room? Yes, ma'am. Sometimes we're healed in our affliction. 
And we come to terms with the new normal. We're at peace with it. We trust God in it. And we realize that my miracle or my healing or my wholeness isn't the ultimate goal, that the ultimate goal is actually the glory of God, that God would receive glory through my life. Would you say Fanny Crosby accomplished the mission? Yes, sir. Well, sometimes when life doesn't go according to our plans, we have this temptation to start blaming someone or something for our trouble. This is like a human uh, tendency. It's almost instinctual to us that we want to look for the cause and the reason and the rationale for this pain and this problem and this trouble. And some of us are worse at this blame game than others. But let me just uh, say just a word here about blaming. Many people in our culture today have a, have a blamer mentality. This is their MO. This is how they, they go through the world, that someone else has to be responsible. I can't possibly be personally responsible for the trouble that has come to my life. Someone else, something else, some other circumstance is the cause of this. And so I blame everything else in the world except my own poor choices or my own poor journey. And I just want to mention to you that I've noticed this over the years, and it's especially annoying to me when people become blamers in life. And it's often followed by, uh, after, the, after, the, after the blame, come, comes a pity party. And, and blamers, blamers not only blame others, but then they feel pitiful about themselves. And, and it's complete with hats and horns, you know, and confetti and a big cake. Pitiful. I'm pitiful. Blamers don't last long. Blamers come and go in the church. Blamers go from marriage to marriage. Blamers go from job to job. Blamers tend to go from place to place. And if you find yourself uh, making excuses for uh, the circumstances in your life and you tend to blame other people for it, here, I have some, some, here's some therapeutical science for you. You stop it. <laughs> That's all I got. Stop, stop it. <laughs> I want to put a statement up on the screen for you. See, see, uh, see what you think of it. At some point, we must recognize that the circumstances we ask God to change are often the very circumstances God is using to change us. How many of you hate that statement? It's like, I darn it, that's true. Dang it, that is right. And so we, we need to lean into that. I have a friend fighting cancer right now, and I'm praying that he'll be completely healed and totally restored to health. That's what I'm, I'm hanging on to that. I'm, I'm fighting for that. I'm, I'm praying that God's miracle provision will, work, will, will occur in his, in his life. But listen to me. Even if God heals him and restores him completely, that won't be the ultimate purpose of God in his life. Because the ultimate purpose of God in his life is to bring glory and honor to himself, to, to honor and glorify God. That's, that's God's will for all of us, his glory. That's why, listen, cancer can't keep you from doing the will of God. Divorce can't keep you from doing the will of God. Financial failure cannot keep you from doing the will of God. Career failure cannot keep you from doing the will of God. Nothing can keep you from doing the will of God. You can glorify God under any and every circumstances. The fact is that sometimes pain and suffering can have a sanctifying effect on us on our kids, on our spouse, on our family, on our friends, on me. 
Because the ultimate plan and purpose and will of God for all of us is to bring glory to himself. There it is. There it is. And here's what. It's hard for us sometimes to accept that and deal with that. And it's especially poignantly true in the life of the modern American church where we, where we easily get confused about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We get confused about the cost of discipleship. We underestimate what the deal is. Because the deal is once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was blind, but now I can see. And so I owe him everything. Once I was a slave to sin and entrenched in the world, but now I'm a slave of righteousness. Once I belong to myself and my own ambition and my own desires, but now I belong to Jesus Christ. I am no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I have surrendered my life fully to him. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we talk about miracles and we encourage people to take bold steps of faith and get out of the boat, you know, and fill the pots and take a walk to the pool of Siloam and watch the miracle presence of God. And Christian Americans hesitate and we balk and we wonder about that. And the pastor gets up and says, you know, the Bible, the Bible teaches that we should all be good stewards of our lives by our time and our talents and our resources. And we say, you know, tithing becomes an important feature of a fully formed devoted follower of Jesus in the American church because what are you talking about? So that, for example, just to illustrate this point, we have 20% of people who actually fund 80% of the Christian initiatives in the world. And the remaining 80% of people fund about 20% of what happens. Now, let me ask you something. Does that seem right? And so when when knotheads like me stand up and say, you know, we ought to give our lives in full surrender to Jesus so that whatever he says and whenever he says and with whomever we says and wherever he says, our answer is always yes. Yes, Lord, because my life is devoted to bringing you honor and glory. This is not me about me anymore. It's about you. Listen to Hebrews 11. The writer says, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, who became powerful in battle, routed foreign armies, women received back their dead, raised to life again. I mean, this, this is the... This is the, the this wonderful chapter extolling the virtues of the men and women of faith. Hall of Fame of Faith. And I wish the chapter ended there, but it doesn't. It goes on. Listen, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world wasn't worthy of them. Let me just ask you, were half of these saints of God in the will of God and the other half not in the will of God? Listen to me, the will of God isn't safe. In fact, it might even get you killed. Yeah. But if God gets the glory, then the goal is accomplished. Hmm. And the eternal reward we receive will be well worth any sacrifice we make. 
You have, you have to have an eternal perspective to get through life and to get through the circumstances and the great challenges of life. You have to see, you have to see life through the lens of eternity and see that God is at work no matter what. I, I ruminous from time to time about the death, the tragic death of our nephew Caleb. I've told you the story years now. And Caleb was precious to us. He was like a son to us, literally like a son. Caleb... Caleb went to the same high school that we went to. Subsequently, my sister's boy, oldest son. You know, whatever athletic records I still had at our high school, and I still had a few, he came along and broke them all. You know. You know good for him. <laughs> he, was just, he was just great. He's just, he was lovely in every way. He was just fam- he, was, he was one of these four-star blue-chip kids. 22 years old, he was tragically killed on the farm. And it devastated us. And there are well-meaning, good-hearted people who now 13 years later still come up to us, you know, and they'll say things like, you know, I, I know that's hard for you, but time heals all wounds. Let me clue you in on something. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I have that reference point and a couple of other reference points in my life, just like you have reference points in your lives. And let me just say this out loud. There are some things that time doesn't heal. There are some things that you don't get over. You just don't. It's too much, too hard. So you don't get over it. But let me tell you what you do. You can get through it. You may not get over it, but you can get through it. You can go through the fire and come out on the other side and realize that God is a faithful God, that God will take care of us, that God is reliable, that God is good, and that even though my pain is great and it's something I'm never going to get over, I am going to get through this so that I don't have to obsess over it every day, every moment of every day, and that I can get on with a focused, purposeful future and a hopeful destination because God is good. Listen, I don't know why bad things happen to good people. And I don't know why good things happen to bad people, but I do know this. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. And he causes all things to work together for our good, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that while we can't track him all the time in every circumstance of our life, we can trust him because he is in control, and he has us in the palm of his hand, and he does all things well. true. So we can ask the questions, why do children fall out of windows and become paralyzed? Why do babies die in house fires? Why do children, why are they born blind? Why does that happen? Well, we don't know. Can't answer those questions. We only trust in God's character and his goodness and seek his glory. Listen to Corey Ten Boom. Some of you know the name Corey Ten Boom. She miraculously survived a Nazi concentration camp during the Second World War, and her life was beautifully depicted in a movie produced in 1975 by the Billy Graham Association entitled The Hiding Place. Here's a quote from Corey Ten Boom. I'll put it on the screen for you. Maybe it'll encourage you. She said, There is no pit too deep that God's grace isn't deeper still. I love that. Remember Joseph from the Old Testament, betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery, falsely accused uh, for a crime he didn't commit, thrown into prison after 17 years of trials and tribulations and sufferings. 
He stands now as the prime minister of Egypt before his family and his brothers who had betrayed him. And this is what he said. This is the explanatory style that got him through all of the tough times in his life. And he had a lot of them. This is what he said. I'll put this on the screen for you too. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph lived with a sense of purpose and destiny, and that destiny as it unfolded was to save the nation. His brothers, as it turns out, became 12 tribes of Israel. (laughs) Amazing. So the all question before us when we face these unanswerable questions is, will will it make us bitter or will it make us better? Aldous Huxley said it this way, one more quote for the screen, experience is not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. Friends, hear the wisdom of God. Hear it. Jesus said, no one's to blame for this. This happened so that God could receive glory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there it is. That leads me to this last uh, point. And that is blind obedience. If you're following the outline, blind obedience. Like many of the miracles Jesus performed, this one comes with a set of instructions. You remember the water to wine included, hey, fill those pots with water. Uh, get out and walk on water. Hey, get out of the boat. Uh, the miracle of the multiplication of food. Hey, uh, have the people sit down and get ready for lunch. Collect some baskets. And we're going we're gonna to have a miracle. And in this case, it was go to the pool of Siloam and wash off your face. Now, why? Why would Jesus do that? The guy's blind. He's totally blind. And why not just heal him on the spot? The pool of Siloam and the mud. What was with the mud? What's up with the mud? A couple of speculations there. One is this was superstition in that culture in that time. There there are still cultures in the world where this is true, where they think that saliva has some kind of magical powers. And Jesus may have just been trying to, you know, mess with people and connect people with that. Other people speculate that he was, you know, the Pharisees were always staring over shoulders to look what Jesus was doing. He knew the Pharisees were around that day. And so just to tweak them, mess with them. This is the one I like best. Makes a little mud. You know, I can see him going. He sees a couple of Pharisees over there, you know, mumbling. And he's going, (laughs) I mean, making a big mud pie. Just a big, messy mud pie. Slapping it on the guy. Just for fun. Just for fun. (laughs) It's probably not the way it happened, but I I like that. (laughs) And he says, go to the pool of Siloam. Now, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. I I have a friend whose name is John. He's a United Methodist pastor, and, and John was born with a relatively mild case of cerebral palsy. John's... Uh, physical uh, disabilities include some trembling, some slurred speech, and one of his legs kind of drags a little bit. But he's been fully functional, and he's had a great ministry, preaching the gospel of Jesus, loving his people. John tells the story that when he was a little little guy, his family came home after a long day in the car, and it was dark, and it was a driving rainstorm. And this is before the days when you had automated garage doors, and he said his dad turned to him and handed him the keys, said, now, John, I want you to go around the back of the house and unlock the door and then come and lift up the garage door so we can get in. 
John said, well, okay. He got out of the car, and by the time he got to the back, he said he was completely soaked. And he got back there, and it was dark, and he got the storm door open, and you know, he's, and he's shaking, he's cold, and he's natural trembling, and he's trying to get the key, and he drops the keys, and down on the ground, now he gets frustrated, and he starts to cry, and he can't see, and he can't get the thing, and he tries and tries, he just can't, can't get the key in the lock. So he goes back out to the car, and his dad got out of the car and stood there in the rainstorm with him. He said, what's going on, John? And John said, through my tears, he said, Dad, I can't. And his dad looked at him, and he said, John, I don't want to ever hear you for the rest of your life ever use the words, I can't. I don't know how you would have responded to little John standing there crying in the rain. But this is what his daddy did. And he said, now you get your sorry behind back around the house and unlock that door like I told you. And he said, he got back in the car and shut the door. <laughs> John said he went back around there and he was so mad and so frustrated, so upset. He wrestled with it fumbled with it, kept trying, kept trying. He said he finally got the key in the lock and opened that door and let his family in. John said that was a life-changing event for him because his, his tendency, his temptation because of his disability made him feel sorry for himself and feel like he was diminished and incapable of certain function. But he said that day he got over that. And he's lived well. What happened to the man born blind, as it turns out, when Jesus said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash, what that implied, as it turns out, is that he had to, he had to navigate Hezekiah's tunnel, which connects the Gihon spring with the pool of Siloam, which means he would have had to descend on hundreds of steps down through the Hezekiah tunnel down to the Pool of Siloam, and it was the Feast of Tabernacles that weekend when the miracle was performed. So there were thousands of extra people in the city that day, so he would have had to fight his way with this mud all over his face, down these steps, through this crowd to the Pool of Siloam. Now, I want to speculate about this. Maybe this man had lived a relatively helpless life, and he, we know he was a beggar, and Jesus asked for the, his blind obedience as a means of restoring his dignity by rebuking his helplessness. I like to think there's something to that. What we do know happened because he was willing to obey what Jesus asked him to do is the Bible says he came back seeing. He came back seeing. Which begs the question, if he hadn't obeyed Jesus to go to the pool of Siloam and wash, would he have received his miracle? And I think the answer is obviously clear. The answer is not, not a chance. Not a chance in the world would he have received his miracle without that step of obedience. If he hadn't taken that step, he wouldn't have received it. As we've learned, most miracles require an act of blind obedience. I want to just push you here as we come to the end of this message. This is the clarion call of God to every human being who's ever lived. This is the call of God to you. 
Are you willing to take a step of obedience in the direction of God in order to receive from God His promise? Are you willing to take the leap of faith, as it were, in a level of trust that I no longer can manage on my own? First of all, my own salvation, my eternal destiny is at risk, is in question. And do I have the boldness of faith to take a step of obedience to the call, the clarion call of Jesus Christ to me in order to follow him with all of my heart, to lay down my life and make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of my life? Am I willing to take that step? Listen to me, friends. You can grow up in a church. You can be baptized in a church. You can learn the Bible. You can, you can memorize verses. You can teach Sunday school. You can come to church every week. You can be a faithful tither. You can, you can do all of your religious duty, and you can miss the kingdom of God. And the reason you can miss the kingdom of God is because you still haven't taken that one step of blind obedience in trusting Jesus Christ completely with your life. And I want to push on you about that. I want to nudge you a bit. That this is an important step. And I wonder beyond that today, what step of obedience do you need to take in your life today in order to open your eyes so that you can see more clearly God's plan and purpose and will for your life so that you can see His plan and take steps in that direction? What step of obedience do you need to take today maybe to surrender a habit or give up a certain pattern in your life so that that generational curse that is on you and your family can be broken once and for all? What step of obedience can begin a new chapter in your life? Old things passing away and all things becoming new. The other gospels report that this blind man received his miracle and people began to chastise him over it because they couldn't get their minds around it. And they were arguing about it and speculating about it and wondering if this is actually the guy who was blind. This can't be the guy born blind. He can see that that's not possible. But this guy concluded all of the arguments. He just focused it right back down to this point. He said, look, all I know is this guy named Jesus. He came along, put some mud in my face, told me to wash it off, and now I can see. Jesus is the one responsible for this. And he said, so you, you figure that out from here. And my final statement is this. All I know for sure is once I was blind, but now I can see. Once I was blind, now I can see. This guy, Jesus, put some mud in my face and he asked me to take a step of blind obedience to go down to the pool of Siloam and wash it off. And I obeyed him. And now I can see. Now I have a miracle. Now I can see. Now my life has changed. Now I have a second chance. Now I have a new beginning. Now my life makes sense. Now, now all of this has come together for me because I took a step of obedience in a godly direction. What step might you need to take today? Is he calling you? Is he asking for your obedience? Maybe for some of you it's that step of faith, that blind leap of faith into the arms of Jesus to trust him for your eternal destiny, your eternal soul. It's an important step, you know, the most important step you'll ever take. But I can tell you and I can get a witness in this room that if you're willing to take that step, Jesus will be there waiting for you. It takes courage, you know. How much courage, did, how much courage did it take that blind boy to haul himself down to the pool? Mm -hmm. A little bit. And it'll take courage from you as well. All right, now let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, teach us to never say never.
Thank you that you are the God of second chances. It's never too little. It's never too late. So Jesus, we invite you into our circumstances. We pray for your miracle grace. Lord, we know some of our deepest hurts are not healed. Some of our hardest questions go unanswered. Indeed, time does not heal all wounds, but eternity will. Yes, it will. And if we place all our struggles and questions in your hands, we might just end up like the man born blind with a second chance at life. Lord, remind us of the ultimate purpose of our lives, which is to bring glory to your name. So when you speak, Lord, help us to follow. May we find ourselves following you in obedience to your direction, your call, because we know, we know that one step of obedience can change everything. And so we pray for this clarity, this wisdom, this courage in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And the people said,